conscious capital. Profit equals people and planet. This is Conscious Capital with Tane Hunter. Revolutionising the way we think about business and investment. Find us on DAB Plus and Instagram. I'm Tane Hunter. You're listening to Conscious Capital, where we explore the cutting edge of science, technology, and human progress to help individuals and organizations understand what's coming next. On this show, you'll hear from scientists, entrepreneurs, and technologists who are all on a mission to foster intelligent, optimistic thinking about the future. You'll learn that there are better ways of doing things in the 21st century and how you can be part of creating and investing in a fair and sustainable future for all. Conscious Capital. Better business for a better world. Welcome to Conscious Capital. I'm Tane Hunter. My background is in cancer research, data science, and machine learning. I'm the co-founder of Future Crunch, a think tank that seeks out stories of human progress and ingenuity and works with current and emerging leaders to ensure they're creating sustainable businesses that work for people and the planet. We're focused on solutions rather than problems. We research the science, technology, and tools humanity has created to help solve some of the world's biggest challenges. Conscious Capital, net profit to net zero. Now, I'm pretty excited today because later in the show, we will be talking to Josh Kirkman. Sir, he's the Surfers for Climate CEO. He has a history in climate communication in the Nordic clean tech investment space, as well as sporting history in competitive bodyboarding. He's got some pretty cool stories. Now, as a bodyboarder, Josh has earned multiple Australian championship titles, and as well as being a highly ranked competitor on the global stage. He is passionate about affecting change in the diverse and growing surf community, focused on leading this community towards greater political agency for people and the planet. But before we get salty in the ocean with Josh, right now I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by a lovely member of the Future Crunch team, Dr. Shasta Henry. Hello, Shasta. G'day, Tane. It is always good to be here. All right, for our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am a, uh, a doctor of ecology and entomology. I am just wild about bugs. So I study the ways that insects provide essential services for humankind, things like creating our ecosystems, and also ways that they can be repurposed, like redeployed in the way that we would use drones to solve some of the problems that we face, like pollution or invasive species control. So I'm a biology and data nerd. Chess is a bug nerd, but together we really are excited about what's going on in the world and we love to help people understand it. Because right now there are 10 people living in space and astronomers have found that a free-floating planet, these dark isolated orbs roaming the universe untethered to any host star, these floaters are actually six times more abundant than the worlds orbiting their own suns, like our own planet Earth. This means that our galaxy is home to trillions of these worlds gone rogue. And recently, for the second time ever, one of these Earth-sized free floaters has been detected. This is mind-boggling. <laughs> I don't also like the idea of it very much. This feels very ominous. The, the universe is full of unknowable, 
Dark. Almost unseeable, dark orbs, planets. Mm, mm, mm. No, thank you. I'd like to send this one back. <laughs> <laughs> Not allowed. Back here on the planet we call home. More than 73,000 people in Nigeria just gained access to clean water supplies. This is following the construction of 19 new solar-powered boreholes, so nobody has to pump anything anywhere. What a relief. Also in Uganda, a new climate-resilient irrigation program has just been launched. This is going to supply more than 108,000 farmers with water uh, over the next six years. So things are getting better. And wetter, apparently. A new AI-fired detecting network is being used to monitor millions of acres of land in the Pacific Northwest and South Australia. This allows real-time fire hazard detection, which allows early response, which is great news for Australia, a country well known for its terrible wildfires. Indeed, I'm not only researching uh, how insects create ecosystems, but my PhD was actually on how uh, Australian invertebrates respond when their host plants get barbecued. Not all of our plants like eucalypt can bounce back from a fire. So it's not only good for people, but all of the critters that we share the planet with. Mm. An incredible public health campaign in Brazil is reaching children who missed out on their standard um, barrier of vaccinations. So community health workers, battery, it's battery. Who's Barry? I'm going to try that one again. <laughs> An incredible public health campaign in Brazil is reaching out to children who've missed their standard battery of vaccinations. So this is community health workers running free clinics in crowded cities, but also picture this, crossing rivers in canoes, taking weeks-long ferry trips and also hiking to some of the most remote areas in the country. So slowly but surely this effort is um, creating this network which is reaching every child in Brazil. Also in public health, uh, there is hope for women battling pre- and postnatal depression. This is um, with the announcement of the approval of the first oral medication available to treat this condition, which is uh, means that people have you know bodily autonomy, that they are able to be given a script, given their medication, and they can admit it to administer it to themselves, which is really empowering. And, and for the demographic itself, this is huge news because it's a huge number of people. The stat I have in front of me is for 400,000 new mothers, and that's just in the USA. So globally, this is affecting millions of people. And this is a really beautiful piece of news to alleviate that stress in an already stressful time. Yeah, happy mothers, happy kids, happy families, happy world. Now, Gabon will wipe $450 million off of its national debt. How, you might ask? By increasing protection of its marine ecosystems that are home to leatherback and olive ridley turtles and 20 species of dolphins and whales. It's part of a debt for nature scheme, a swap, in which developing countries pay off their debt equivalent to the amount of nature they protect. Now, I love this story. Imagine... Every country on planet Earth had its debt relieved compared to how much conservation of its land, oceans that it that it preserves. I think this is stunning. It's absolutely wonderful idea. I can see why 
it, we would, yeah, why you're advocating for it to be global because there's um, biodiversity in every single skerrick of the planet left untouched. I can also see why it is focused in the developing um, nations so far. It's kind of like a two-pronged attack or conservation, the opposite of an attack. Uh, the developing world generally around the equator has a higher concentration of biodiversity than places where we live in southern Australia, further from the equator. And, of course, developing nations with less infrastructure for people, not necessarily less people, uh, they have a greater amount of untouched biodiversity to conserve. I can see why we're focusing our attention uh, on on conserving, you know, things like rainforests and stuff that are still standing. And I mean, even the developed world, they've got some of the biggest debt. And imagine <laughs> if some of their debt was relieved as well. I mean, imagine what could be done uh, thanks to re debt relief. And I think, it, imagine it, instead of warring over the oceans and having warships, you know, saber rattling and that kind of stuff in the oceans, imagine there was a war to protect as much ocean as humanly possible. Well, incentivizing, absolutely, when we, like, we grossly under, we, like, we've grossly underestimated um, the, the value. It's called ecosystem services. It's mm. a sort of a geographical study of, well, if I had to replace all of these trees, if I had to pay to, like, have a machine or replant and wait the amount of time that it would take to literally replace these trees and the oxygen that they provide and the habitat that they provide, and then you put a, a, a value dollar amount on what those ecosystem services are, we've just grossly underestimated and take for advantage like just literally everything that we touch and <laughs> on a daily basis. Um, and so if we were operating under the real assumption of that real dollar value, then incentivizing the protection of any tree on any street um, would, would, yeah, would really change the way that our society functions like you're describing, Tane. Well, imagine if you got subsidies for your, your front and backyard, if you made it native plants, the, for example, in Australia, oh, low that's water. that's a cool one. Yeah, and increase the biodiversity, help the pollinators, help the birds, help the local wildlife, you would get subsidies. Some of your debt potentially could be forgiven. It's actually, it circles back to a story that we covered when we were talking um, about architecture and yeah. the impact of green space on people. What is it in um, California and in Arizona, they've outlawed lawns, but uh, community members who are replacing their lawns, which take up a lot of um, water and don't provide any biodiversity, isn't it that people were having native plants and native landscaping sort of subsidised and provided for them to replace their lawns because it cuts down on the water stress in these drought-stricken um, states in the US? I think if we took this approach, we would have a huge effect on conservation and protection of our biodiversity, which I think that we can all agree on the planet certainly needs. Now, we mentioned about preserving our oceans, and that's good because we're chatting about oceans next with Josh Kirkman, the CEO of Surfers for Climate Change. Tune into Opportunity. Disrupt Radio. Welcome to Conscious Capital with me, Tane Hunter. And me, Shasta Henry. Where we explore the frontiers of science and technology and explore better ways of doing conscious business that works for people and the planet. Now, we're really excited because today we're talking to Josh Kirkman. 
Surfers may have an intimate relationship with the ocean, but have not been seen as proactively driving climate change solutions. Now, this Australian-based organization, Surfers for Climate, which Josh is the CEO of, have changed have really changed that and they're turning the tide on climate change. So Josh, tell us something about yourself that cannot be found with your average Google search. Hello, Josh, and welcome to the program. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, it's a pleasure to be on the pl- program. So thanks for having me. Um, geez, if you can't find it on the Google search, I'm worried that it's probably something that shouldn't be out there anyway. <laughs> like, is that something I should share? There's a certain, there's a certain group of people. This is uh, it's been it's been a really not divisive. It's been a divisive uh, question. Some people are like, oh yeah, here's my like, I can play the violin uh, behind my back, and some people are like, I can't tell you what's not on Google. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'll go I'll go with both options. I think like the one thing that you wouldn't see on a Google search is that I, it's a musical related one actually. Like that is the other nice. um, passion in my life that I don't get to I have as much time for I guess since I was in my teens, but um there was a period of time when I was quite young. I must have been 12, 13 years old and I played the trumpet in um in high in school and then into high school and there was a period of time where I was doing the rounds every Anzac day, uh, doing the last post at yeah. like bowling clubs and even got a few funerals in there as well. So that was um, a little period that no one would know about. I could do a mean last post as a young fella. That's pretty cool. Oh, I think wow. that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's harder to play the trumpet once you grow a moustache though. So I was pretty good when I was 12. <laughs> yeah, uh, beards don't work with uh, those kinds of instruments. I, I can attest to that. Hmm. Uh, so you've had quite a career journey from like bodyboarding champion to comms manager for a clean tech investment company. Can you tell us your story, like a little bit of background about how, why, how have you arrived here today? Yeah, it feels like it should start with like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> um, my story is all about probably saying yes to things and opportunities I think that's probably what characterizes any step in the journey so far but um, I've been really fortunate to have had tremendous experiences that the average person who grew up in Foster Tunkari probably hasn't had the chance to have I was really fortunate to excel at this pretty obscure sport Um, it had its moment in the late 80s and early 90s but bodyboarding was that first passion of mine that got me into the water. Started from a really young age. Um, I do have memories of being out in the water when I was five or six years old, kind of in the whitewash, having a ball. Got really hooked on it, had quite the competitive streak and started to win a lot of competitions. Pretty competitive kid. And that kind of translated into opportunities to travel overseas and see the world, go and compete internationally. Yeah, got a couple of Australian championships along the way and some decent success on the world stage. And um, yeah, found found it lacking for me in my early 20s. Took a breather, uh, went to uni. It happens to Finished an arts degree. Yeah, exactly. Took eight years <laughs> to finish an arts degree, which is probably happens to most arts degree students. <laughs> but like, um, took my time, travelled a lot still. You know, worked on boats, did did some, did a few Atlantic crossings in my time just by oh, being well, a decade well, and stuff. So, well, yeah. what kind of boats were you were you crewing on? Yeah, I got the chance. I got I dipped my toe into this kind of super yacht game. So I was working on an eighty foot Southern Wind. It was called. It was a beautiful vessel named Matlow. Yeah, did a did a Caribbean season, a European season, and then 
in between that, I did a number of deliveries and stuff. So I was always on those kind of uh, yachts from about 80 to, I think the the largest was 110 feet. So all sailing yachts, tremendous experience, got to see the, the ocean again from a whole other perspective and yeah. made a lot of great friends through it. And um, yeah. yeah, and then found myself in Sweden, eventually in my mid thirties, living over there, working, got into this clean technology space was doing a master's in environmental management and policy in a place called Lund in the south of Sweden. Yeah, just kind of got under the wing of a really great mentor and now a really good friend um, in that clean tech company. Learned a lot, got involved in, you know, kind of helping out companies that were saving natural resources. I was kind of helping them translate their brilliance into English and help it, you know, help them get into markets um, outside of the Nordics, which is kind of the, that's the thing about the Nordics. It's a place with so many great ideas and and really bright individuals, but their businesses need to be international if they can actually change the world. And so they have to translate everything they're doing into a language, you know, they have to speak English and, and at least communicate what they're doing in English. So that was kind of my unique capability <laughs> being yep. an Aussie. The quick uh, connection to today is that back in, it must have been about 2018, 2019, the fight for the bite was happening in South Australia okay. where a lot of surfers finally activated on the threat of an oil and gas project uh, in mm-hmm. the Great Australian Bight. I was surfing and kind of dabbling in a bit of journalism in my spare time up in Sweden and kind of got asked to be involved in that campaign from the Nordic perspective and because it was a Norwegian oil company that was um, looking for oil and gas in South Australia. And so I got kind of pulled into that and that's where I met Belinda Baggs, who is the founder of Surfers for Climate. And then I've been now working with Surfers for Climate for the last two years and it's an absolute privilege and a pleasure to be having this job and it's cool. doing some I can, cool shit. I can, I can kind of see, you know, it's like the it's like the the hero's journey, the script of the movie. It's like, oh, and then the oil and gas company, but they're coming for the surfers and, like, the surfers have been, like, listless and, like, they're all chill dudes and, like, they don't want to fight. Mm. Now they want to mm. fight. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It was good to finally see surfers really show up for something and I think um, – that's that's what I'm trying to tap into now is to to kind of get surfers to know that it's bigger than just an oil spill risk. It's actually climate change that is the real problem. Because you'd, um, you'd think so like yeah, the, it would work to do that. The buy-in seems pretty clear, particularly the way you've just described it. You know, like you're out, you're in contact with uh, this remarkable mm. natural resource. You know, with this playground and this sort of uh, this delicate and complex ecosystem. Uh, so it feels mm. like the buy-in is is pretty self-evident was it just your connection with water which um created was that your was your climate awakening kind of prior to that or was it sort of directly through you know this threat to the ocean that you're really close to for me personally it was actually in university and it had nothing to do with surfing or the or the ocean it was more to do with the global Plot food twist. system yeah yeah no i just uh, I, I i actually i was i was studying um like sustainability and development studies and stuff like that and i just i just learned about this food system that we had which kind of saw places in famine exporting grain whilst people were starving and looking at you know the reality of australia and the us for that matter you know having obesity levels that are through the 
through the roof whilst also having the greatest amount of food waste um, being created. You know, like all of these really absurd things happening which then ultimately link into the climate conversation because the way we grow food and the, the damage that we do to the landscape through that is, is tremendously bad when it comes to actually having a healthy planet. So, yeah, a lot of that kind of kicked in for me in my university was just to start like, you know, when you're studying sustainability at university, you know, you're kind of ahead of the pack on the detail. Um, so, yeah, that's probably where it kicked off for me. And there was also a point in time there, it must have been in the early O's, when manufacturing for the bodyboards I was riding moved offshore. It used to be the case that there were a number of different companies that would shape boards in Australia yep. using pretty gnarly foams, which, yeah. you know, toxic it's all petrochemicals um yeah of course so that all moved offshore and i just remember feeling weird about it um because i had a i had my own board model and that was kind of part of the deal of sponsorship you know you got your josh kirkman board and you want people to buy it and that's part of your job is to sell the board and then go and perform on it and this was even just before i really got in got my brain activated in uni but like i just felt weird about just this unknown person somewhere else making my thing and not knowing like was it a kid getting paid below a you know getting a slave wage was it were they were they being looked after were they just breathing in all the fumes and dust and chemicals that I you know neatly get packaged up into a foam craft I don't have to deal with that bit like so yeah it was just a bit weird to me and that was probably where my brain started to go shit what's going on here like this doesn't feel right that this is happening. So what was the real, the moment of realization that you realized a supply chain went to other countries and potentially, you know, had negative ramifications, not only for people, but the entire planet? Can you describe that moment of realization? Yeah, I think it was just this moment where there was the reality of the board that had my name on it, which was being sold to people, wasn't the same as the board that I was getting made by the shaper who was still in Australia, just making the boards for the team riders. Like we had our own special guy still who would yeah. shape for us in Australia. So there was this big disconnect. You know, there's an ethical dilemma there as well, right? Like, hey, I'm yeah. buy my board, but it's not really my board. It's like your yeah. real merch is knockoff of your sponsorship merch. Yeah, exactly. And I just felt odd about it. I just thought, oh, man, this is weird. So it wasn't, you know, when you're a 20-year-old, your aspirations are about trying to win a world title or get on the cover of a magazine. You're not really having the the really profound moment or shift. I wouldn't say that my life is is that big moment where then, you know, the hero goes on to change everything. (laughs) Like it was more about just a a general unease creeping in and then, knowledge uh, alleviating the unease and both of them competing against each other because as you learn more, you become less at ease yeah. when it comes to climate change and the environment because you can't, yeah. there's a point at which you can't really relax anymore because you can look everywhere and there's a problem. I, I agree. Like where, especially in the the terms and the perspective of climate change, the there are problems everywhere. Um, Mm. but, and there are many organizations out there that deal with climate change and NGOs. There's a lot of greenwashing and Mm. stuff like that, but how is surfers for climate different? Because we really respect you. And so Mm -hmm. I'd like to hear from 
from you how Surfers for Climate is engaging the community in a different way and creating activism um, mm. from a, a place that uh, is generally untapped, from a community and culture that is untapped. Mm. The way that we are different, and I, I guess it comes down to a few things. I feel like we are always conscious of who we are and where we come from and that the majority of Australians, like and when I say where I come from, like I come from a regional area of Australia, quite a conservative space, Yeah, not your inner city progressive environment where people kind of get up to speed on the latest issue or the, you know, the progressive issue that is capturing the imagination of everyone in the cafe. Uh, not no, like the Nordics. <laughs> they don't have <laughs> not the, like uh, the, the Nordics. They don't have the oat milk at the cafe in Foster. No, they do now, to be <laughs> fair, and it has changed. But you know, when I was growing up, you know, like I, I, I remember there wasn't a lot of diversity. You know, like there yeah. wasn't. I remember seeing uh, a guy. You know, I think an Indian restaurant popped up there at one point, and this. This dude was dressed like an Indian dresses up in India, cruising the streets. I was like, wow, look at you go. And I thought it was rad. But I'd been seeing other places around the world for a while, but I thought, wow, you're in Tunkari, dressed like that. That's pretty fuck. That's sick. And um, <laughs> But it was like a shockingly cool thing to see. Like it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't normal. But it is changing as um, particularly I think COVID had a lot to do with that place changing. A lot of people from Sydney got out. And so a lot of these coastal regions have actually abruptly changed in many ways. But I think that like the thing about surfers, like you've got to really speak to your audience. And so I think what we do really well, there's two things. First of all, me being a bodyboarder, I take on this role with a bit of a chip on my shoulder because I was picked on as a kid for riding a bodyboard from surfers. Absolutely as wondering... That. Wondering how you balance being a, uh, a a bodyboarder in charge of a bunch of yeah. surfers. <laughs> well, I relish I relish in the opportunity to lead <laughs> um, surfers. <laughs> like I I get a sick thrill out of it because a lot of I, I copped a lot of shit and a lot yeah. of bodyboarders copped a lot of shit. It's and kind now, of like hanging out yeah. at, the, at the skate park um, with rollerbladers, skateboarders, oh, and BMXers. It's the same 100%. kind of vibe, but instead of the concrete and dirt infrastructure, it's the, the waves of the sea, right? Oh, like yeah. All- oh, yeah. So, like, there's that. So And so, for me, I see a strength in diversity. And so, a really important part of this role and what Service for Climate does is that it celebrates the diversity of craft and the people who ride them. So that's really important to me and I think that's something that I've brought with me into the role and so we're already living that which actually only makes us stronger because the number of people who ride the short board with the three fins and the high performance approach, that's the minority of surfers in this country. Like the majority of surfers are riding a foam board and they are going straight to the shore and they they don't know necessarily who Mick Fanning is or the latest world champion. They're just everyday people who want to stand up on a wave or yeah. they want to they want to lay down on a wave and just get that thrill. So I think that really broadened definition of who a surfer is, it, that kind of broadens the church. So that only makes yeah. us stronger. Um, so I'm quite proud of that. And then the other thing we do is that we recognise that like climate change for, a re- for, for since it's beginning of being a thing that we should worry about it's been overly intellectualized it's been this thing that you can talk about 
if you have a master's degree and you can alienate people really quickly if you use that type of language when you're trying to convince um, the everyday Australian that they should care about this. So I think what another strength of ours is to make it accessible. So we do that through our programming. We do it by focusing on language that won't make a person from a conservative background feel weird or feel dumb or feel like they're not good enough to be involved. So I think because they they are more than good enough to be involved, that's the truth. Like everybody has a really important role to play. So I'd say that they're the reasons why we're having the success we're having. I also think like just focusing on like, I mean, I'm a competitive guy, so I really only care about winning. Um, and <laughs> Got to so, win climate change. Well, yeah. So, you know, like linking back to our most recent, you know, what you could point to as the beginning of a success is that, you know, we've, we've built relationships, we've uh, done the work to try and see a legislative outcome take place. And, yep. you know, right now there's a period right now actually where New South Wales might become the first state to ban oil and gas exploration in in coastal waters and also disable any infrastructure that would go to Commonwealth waters. This is work that we've prioritised and we've done this by engaging with politicians who we thought could get the job done and in this case it's the Liberals and Nationals in New South Wales that have introduced the legislation to the New South Wales Parliament. We know that there's lots of politicians, independents, Labor Party, all of them, have already been on the record as saying that they don't want this type of um, exploration happening off the coast of New South Wales. But, you know, we've we've made sure that we can engage with all politicians and um, and in particular those those in the coalition who we believe can get the job done because, we uh, once again, it's the, the best thing you can do is be diverse and inclusive and that includes talking to politicians who their brand may say that they're not interested but the individuals, that brand needs to be checked out. You know, like the New South Wales Liberals and Nationals have been really strong on climate for a long time. And so, look, we're in this position because there's leadership on the issue there. And so, you know, we're we're here to talk to everyone and get it done. I'm just here. If we can get the legislation changed, that's my job done. I don't have to figure out a reason to exist other than winning. Conscious Capital, better business for a better world. You talked about winning for climate change. What does winning actually look like for you and mm. surfers for climate? Change in laws, man. Change in laws. <laughs> like at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, it's the legislation that makes all the difference. Like if we can get a ban on new offshore oil and gas in Australian waters, and that is our stated goal, we want to do that by yeah. 2029. If we can get that done, that is a huge contribution to reducing carbon emissions from Australia. We export 75% of our gas at the moment. I've been told that it's our moral obligation to make sure that Japan and South Korea have enough gas to power their economies. I don't think it's about morals at all. It's about money. We can change this really quickly. We just need the political will and leadership to do it. And the way that leadership and political will is cultivated is by people engaging in the process. And we're here to facilitate everyday Australians, surfers, coastal people. 85% of us live within 50 k's of the coast. We are all pretty much saltwater people here. It's our job to help them engage in the process, change the law, get it done. I think that's the way you change things because that's how legislation drives everything, I believe at least. I was feeling really interested seeing, I think one thing it looks like that um, uh, Surface for Climate are doing, you know, that seems 
pretty different uh, is, is getting really, really specific. Like you're talking about your audience and the value of making them feel, you know, really, really kind of personally engaged. And so I'm seeing that you guys like getting really, really niche, like, uh, like an event, was it specifically for tradies who are surfers it, it makes me oh, almost yeah. think of like yeah. um makes me almost yeah. think of like um you know genetic testing and like specialized medicine so so at that scale i picture yeah. you getting into like a really specialized uh community message and and finding a really specific buy yeah. so is is that working and do you feel like it's maybe scalable i know we've got other people listening today who are also mm. looking for the way to kind of like energize and mobilize their message I look, I think when it comes to changing anyone's behavior, if they can see themselves in the message, like if you can really make it for them, the barriers to entry dissolve and they can see that they can be a part of it. And so, yeah, look, the tradie initiative, it's a funny one as a, as one example of how we kind of try and craft things. And it's a very personal one for me. Like it's actually goes back to growing up in Foster Tunkari, yep. going away to university becoming a bit of a jerk because I was so smart and I knew <laughs> everything that was wrong with the smart world. Smart people are jerks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Oh, hey, I read that I'm doing all this academic stuff and I, all you builders and developers, you're destroying everything. Look at you. You're doing this. You're doing that. You guys are hopeless. You don't even recycle. Look at all the waste. And, you know, like you can make all these good people feel like shit. You know, I know that I did make a few of my mates feel like shit because and, and in the coastal towns like where I come from, so many people are tradies. Like, I mean, coastal villages, that's pretty much the dominant workforce yep. other than aged care and retirement living, which is what <laughs> Foster Tunko is also famous for. But, you know, like it's um, they're all tradies and the reality, you know, it kind of dawned on me last year when I was, you know, my job's been to kind of create the pathways and I just kind of looked at my mates and I was like, shit, Construction accounts for nearly 40% by some measures. Um, yes. It accounts for like 30 to 40% of CO2 emissions. Like why aren't we talking about that and why aren't we engaging with all these people who are typically politically disengaged? Because that's where the power is, right? Like the dis- the, the informal vote in Australia can be shit. I think it was nearly at 20% at one of the last elections. So like that's a huge chunk of votes. That's a huge chunk of opportunity. And so... Yeah, I just wanted to do something for them. Managed to pull together some really cool partners, a few really cool donors who wanted to support the work. And, yeah, we we launched the trade-up in September last year at Stone and Wood. Um, We've got this amazing kind of messenger and team at uh, Verticom Building. Australia's like, I think they're the only B Corp certified and carbon neutral builder, residential builder in Australia. Oh, cool, yeah. And Dean and Holly from Verticom, they're really... They're deeply involved in the delivery of the the program and the messaging. And we also found a really great partner in Wholesim who are like, they're one of the biggest cement makers or concrete companies in the world. And they do a carbon neutral concrete and like people don't even know this stuff exists. Yep. And yet, and so it's just really cool to be able to talk about, you know, embodied carbon and how that can, you know, be understood by tradies and the, and the role that tradies can play is a ma- is massive like you know if they can start choosing different products if they can inform their clients about the impacts then we've got a really big um, group of people who have typically been ignored in Australia by the environmental movement you know like they've all just been left out there doing their thing and made to feel like shit so I guess it's been really well received 
we're still figuring it out, you know, like none of these things are perfect, but I'd say that um, that particular program, the trade-up, um, we're going to be doing another one of those on the, I think it's the 30th or 31st of August in Clavelli. So we're going to be doing one in Sydney um, end of this month and we're looking to keep rolling those out and it is scalable, right? Like it's just a knowledge pack. A couple of people rock up to deliver it. Um, we can do it anywhere and it's really exciting because tradies around Australia can be a huge force, Um for positive change and you know for us like there's so many of them who live in coastal areas and who surf so they're our people like that's who that's who we need to work with awesome well we're all in this together um and i really think that that's an important point to make you know the balance between purpose and funding is it's a really tough one to navigate if anyone is looking to get funding for a charity and get salty brains together or yeah a, or you know uh, rollerbladers together, BMXers. <laughs> um, you know what? What have you learned? Because I was a BMXer, which makes me even Radical. less cool. <laughs> oh, um, I think BMXers were definitely up there. I think skateboarders still won the day, but definitely above. Yeah, yeah, but what have you learned? How have you driven purpose through business and created value from that? Because yeah, it's, I, it's a yeah. tough one to navigate, especially when you're doing charity. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that the I'm not a typical nonprofit leader. I worked for a clean tech investment fund. I've always been surrounded by small business, and that's all about hustling, and that's about making shit happen and doing it with really limited resources and hoping for the best. <laughs> um, I think that a lot of the activities that kicked off for Surface for Climate were entrepreneurial because of me that's my vibe so trying out ideas playing around with concepts and doing that really um that minimum viable product approach to it so like actually not having everything in place and then just going for it was kind of how i did it um that can only go so far though so you've got to obviously be honest with yourself about what's working and what's not and just know if there is a viable revenue model attached to it but that's the tricky thing so you can kind of start by creating value through entrepreneurial means, but as a charity, there is a limit to that because you're not meant to be entrepreneurial. You're meant to be um, purpose-driven, and that kind of implies that you're meant to, you know, apply for grants and go to philanthropists and do that piece. But I think for us, we're in the transition now from this real pure, uh, pure entrepreneurial approach, which is more my comfort zone, mm -hmm. to becoming to packaging up those opportunities to pitch out to philanthropy in line with our advocacy goal. So I think now that we've got a very clear North Star in terms of we uh, want to draw a line in the sand on new oil and gas in our ocean by 2029 in Australia, that's our North Star. Yeah. The programs that we've kind of iterated in the last year and a half, the trade-up, Salty Brains, the Car Park Cinema, We've got another program called Wave Changer. All of those basically lead towards that North Star, that line in the sand, and that's now the work is actually packaging that up in a way that philanthropy can fund and also grant-making organisations can, can grant money to. And then having that small layer of entrepreneurial kind of um, revenue which comes from, you know, sales of goods and all that kind of stuff at events, that kind of layers on top. You want to have a diversified stream in a, in a charity, I believe. You don't want to be hooked on one thing, otherwise you're incredibly at risk. 
Conscious Capital. Profit equals people and planet. Any surfer in a leadership position, the best waves are the ones that you think you may not make. So that's something that plays into my decision making, which makes a lot of people nervous. You've got to back yourself, otherwise you may as well not even paddle out. So that's kind of what drives some of these decisions. People are swamped, if not overwhelmed, by how much we hear about climate change. So what's what's your mm, what are you what yeah. is generally your your final takeaway message? What's that what's that message or that action that you want people to go away having heard loud and clear uh, as they move forwards after this? Yeah. Just do you, but do it better. Like there doesn't have to be activism if you get involved. If you're in involved and you're working on the system with your unique strengths and abilities, you can make a tremendous impact. You don't have to chain yourself to a tree. You don't have to blockade a coal port unless you're into it, of course. You may get a kick out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It might be your vibe. Don't not do it, but if it's not your thing, don't feel like you don't have a space in it. Like, I mean, a lot of my work and a lot of the success I think that Service for Climate has had is because we sit down and we talk to people and we be our best selves and we be respectful and we give everyone a chance and that's you just got to be a good person like if you want to get anything done you need to work with other people and that that includes politics like changing law requires working with people and so i just think the the most important thing i've learned is that if you're not a jerk people are probably <laughs> going to want to work with you and yep. if you can have fun at the same time they're going to have they're going to get joy from working with you so and if you're working on something as important as doing something about climate change, well then, wow, how good's that? You're having fun with good people changing the world. So Beautiful. get on with it. It sounds to me like uh, you're saying, you know, if, if you're joining a community, then that work that you do personally is is maybe tiny. It doesn't feel like work, and but what you achieve as a community um, is is broader than what an individual can get to in themselves. We've, we've heard other um, Australian startups, um, other Australian um, sort of climate initiatives talk about that as well. The time is to join forces uh, and and put a um, a major shoulder to the wheel rather than um, that individual responsibility perspective. Well, thank you for joining us, Josh. I think you've uh, you've certainly joshed me, and we've done a lot of joshing <laughs> around, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I have one final question for you: If yeah. you would sail across one ocean, because you've done the Atlantic a few times, what, yeah. what would it be? I'd take my time getting across the Pacific, and mm. I'd get to the Galapagos, and I would just hang with some iguanas. That's the trip, right? Yeah. There. The marine iguanas are are pretty wild, uh, yeah. You've seen them, haven't you? Yeah, I've I've done the coconut have. milk run, is what they call Damn. it. But uh, <laughs> I've I've done the this the Pacific. Um, Jealous, but but that's the the main importance of this and what you do for climate is to to keep the climate in a stable position, so we can still everyone on planet Earth can experience these incredible natural wonders iguanas for everyone yeah yeah we're we all have to deal it's like the rich tapestry of life the climate matters and it's an integral part of it so i'd like to leave everyone with a, a quote if you don't mind facts never illuminate you 
the phone directory of whatever city that you're in doesn't illuminate you. But these rare moments of illumination that you find when you read a great poem or you surf a wave, you instantly know. You instantly feel the spark of illumination. That's the power of a good story. It makes something clear, and then you suddenly get it. And I think that's a glimmer of hope that we can all enjoy. Conscious Capital. Net profit to net zero. Hi, I'm Nick Brax, host of Soul Trader on Disrupt Radio. I've been interviewing people who have achieved huge things in life and uncovering how they keep it together and how they survive the struggle to success. You can listen to all of my podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or whichever podcast you prefer. Just search Nick Brax, Soul Trader. When you finish binging all of my shows, be sure to check out the rest of the Disrupt Podcast Library, The Business Lounge, The Next Shift, Global Disruptors, The Advisory Board, and Conscious Capital. Maybe you own a business or an entrepreneur or just simply want to improve yourself. Disrupt podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in to Opportunity. Disrupt Radio.